time ago, an American airplane dropped one bomb on Hiroshima. Ich bin ein Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this. Welcome back, everyone, to the Cold War Podcast, episode 198. With me, as always, is my trusted sidekick, Cameron. How's it going, Cameron? <laughs> now, if you could put that oh, lightsaber oh, away. <laughs> if you could put that Death Star away, just for a little bit. Just give me 59 minutes. That's all I need. I'm good. Thank you, Papa. Good. Man. How are you? Good. Good. Doing, you know, doing okay. I had to go chase my pussy cat. Um, pussy cat scratching out the window, just dying. Of course, in my head, I'm like, pussy's just dying, dying to get in to get to me. But that's yeah. not really. That's what I'll yeah. write in my diary. But yeah, <laughs> that's not what's uh, really going on. No, hey, I thought maybe this time we could take a break from the war, and there was some cool behind-the-scenes stuff that I wanted to share with you. So if I could jump into that. Um, Please. I th- that'd be a lot of fun. Okay, so on June 25th, 1950, the same day, obviously, that North Korean troops crossed the 38th parallel, the Prime Minister of India, he was also the Minister of External Affairs, uh, Jawaharlal Nauru. I'm sure I butchered his name, but I'm going to call him Nauru for the rest of the time, uh, um, was going to get involved in this. Now, so on the same day that the North Koreans cross over, Nauru writes a letter to the United States, to Dean Acheson, and he writes a letter to Stalin. And basically the letters just say, hey, we should all try to figure out how to de-escalate this situation before it gets out of hand. Now, the only reason and I don't mean this to sound racist or anything, but the only reason the Indians are important at this point in time in history is because India, the country, was serving a two-year term as a non-permanent member of the Security Council of the United Nations. And in fact, India had the chair at the time, so they're the ones who would call meetings and that kind of stuff. So the permanent representative of India, his name is Benegal Rao, I'll just call him Rao, um, he was there, and after the after all of the first opening phase of the Korean War is underway, he feels like he needs to explain himself to Nauru, his prime minister, his superior, so he writes this letter. And he writes, um, I just wanted to let you know that when the North Koreans crossed over, the U.S. demanded an emergency meeting because of the invasion. So I accordingly called a meeting. There was no time to consult the government of India upon the draft resolution submitted by the U.S. Events seemed to be marching with great speed and urgent decisions were called for. So basically, he did what he had to do. And of course, as we discussed last time, the what prompted what came from that was resolution number 82 but of course that did not go any further than calling for an immediate cessation of hostilities and for the withdrawal of north korean forces back to the 38th parallel so no that i mean that makes sense but rao also wrote in the letter but it was the third paragraph of this resolution that i did not feel really good about because in his estimation president truman was trying to extend its interpretation to be able to do whatever he wants. And this was the paragraph that called up, that called upon all the members to render every assistance to the UN in this, in this crisis. This 
point of view of his is actually uh, carried out because two days later, the United States won a second resolution, which I believe we talked about, uh, Resolution uh, 83 on June 27th, that said um, North Korea had constituted a breach of peace. Everybody needed together to get together to help repel the attack and restore peace to the Korean Peninsula. And I think we also talked about the third resolution, which was Resolution 84, and that was on July 7th, that said it, it authorized the United States to establish and lead a unified command comprised of military forces for the UN, from the UN states. So anyway, so he's writing this letter. Now, Nehru said in his personal, personal opinion, no, excuse me, Rao told Nehru that in his personal opinion, he felt that the United States was bullying him and the other uh, countries on the Security Council because they were afraid at any second the door would open and the Soviet representative would come back in, sit down at the security table, start vetoing things left and right, and suddenly the Americans can't get what they want. Now, again, Rao was told by other members that it was his impression that the United States, uh, France, and Britain firmly believed that Kim Il-sung was either working at the behest of Stalin or working in coordination with Stalin. But Rao's opinion was that doesn't make any sense because why would Stalin have his representative stay away from the Security Council, not be able to veto, and so the United States could ram through these three other vetoes, and now they get to lead a war? That's a stupid mistake. Stalin doesn't make stupid mistakes. So he goes on to say that at this particular moment in history, the United States is pissed at India for two specific reasons. One, it did not go along with the July 7th resolution that um, authorized the United States to establish and lead a military force. Um, Rao told the Western press, he goes, oh, um, well, we abstained because I thought the resolution was for the com- country's that were helping America, and we weren't helping just because we were too fucking poor to do anything, and so we abstained, which may or may not have been true, but it was his way out. And also, there was a little bit of drama on the Kashmir parallel that we'll probably go into later, and what it was was Pakistan was being aggressive in that area, and America wasn't calling them on it because they wanted India to suffer a little bit because India was currently trying to repair or work on its relations with Stalin because they needed help developing their industrial base. So India is trying to get along with Stalin to get some factories out of it. America is pissed at India. So when Pakistan starts shooting and taking territory and crossing borders, America doesn't call them on this. So it's all it's all convoluted. And I'm almost finished, Cam, and, and you can take over. So anyway... So when Rao writes this letter to Nehru, what he does not know is that his prime minister had sent out two letters, one to Washington and one to Moscow. In fact, they were practically identical letters, except for obviously the recipient. So he sends these two out and he says, hey, India here, we want to localize the fighting and we want to bring about peace. How can we do that? Well, we need your help because we're just India. You are the superpowers. So here's how we're going to do it. This is India's advice to you. First, we have to break the current deadlock within the Security Council. That means letting the proper Chinese minister, i.e. the communist, sit at the seat. 
not the representative from Taiwan. Let's get the proper Chinese um, member in here, which will appease Stalin. Stalin will send his representative back to the Security Council. The band is all back together, and we can take the power of the USA, the USSR, and China, and we can force North Korea to North Korea to back up. And let's all get together and once and for all, however we do it, we're not recommending how, solve the problem on the Korean Peninsula. Sounds beautiful. And I'm almost done. So the Indian ambassador in Russia sends the letter to Stalin. I do not have Stalin's initial response, except for it must have been very positive because Nehru sends a second letter to Stalin. And his second letter says, oh, my God, thank you so much for responding however you did. In fact, with with whatever you said, I'm going to go now talk to the other governments. And if they agree like you did, then I will set up the first Zoom meeting and we can get this baby going. We just got to work on some things. So, But again, the first thing that has to happen is the United States and and uh, the UK have to let the, Chi- the Chinese communist representative onto the Security Council. That is what has to happen first, or we're not going to be able to do anything, and this war is going to get out of hand, and it's going to spread, and it's going to become regional, and nobody wants that. So we we have to get together to solve this Korean problem. So Cam, can you give us an idea of what Stalin might have said, or the tone of his response to Nehru's letter? <clears throat> yeah, I read it. Uh, it was in the New York Times or one of the papers where I was researching. Right. I didn't I didn't copy the whole text because it was pretty sure. short. It was basically a few sentences. <laughs> it was, Stalin was like, yep, thumbs up, yeah. great idea. Sounds good. Uh, I'm happy to do whatever we can do. Just let me know. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, you know, as you said, part of the suggestion that India and uh, the Soviet Union were making for establishing peace involved Mao's Chinese government yeah. the, to have their take their proper seat in the United Nations mm-hmm. and uh, George Marshall refused to even entertain the idea yes. that China yes. could appear at the United Nations so you know we've got a situation here where which again doesn't get talked about a lot in the western history books mm-hmm. Stalin uh, is actively uh, trying to create peace uh, yes. in the situation here and, and had been from the beginning of the war. But part mm. of the deal was China's got to be involved, but also the suggestion from both India and, and the Soviet Union was that the North would uh, you know, go back above the 38th parallel, cessation of hostilities, but then there would be free national elections for a unified national government, which, as we've said, was supposed to be the plan all along when they divided the country up in order to uh, remove the Japanese. Uh, In his cable of August 17th, Stalin said, the general election should be held in both North and South Korea to elect a single government for the whole peninsula. Now... Mm -hmm. The U.S. and and re probably figured that free elections in 1950 yeah. would have produced the same results as <laughs> the elections that they were going to hold in 1948, uh, right. an overwhelming victory for the communists, uh, and that's not something they were willing to risk. Exactly. So the U.N. was also calling for peace and a ceasefire, 
but they wanted to go back to the status quo where the North would return above the 30th yes. parallel and they, yeah. would, they would just continue with the divided country. Although, yeah. as, as we've pointed out before, we know that Re wanted to unify the country. We know that certainly later, um, as we'll see, MacArthur wanted to unify the country under Re's mm-hmm. government. Right. So there must have been a long-term plan on behalf of Re, at least, and probably the US, to unify it, but uh, at their a time of their own bidding, like when they thought they could yeah. pull it off uh, after yeah. enough... Get away with after it. After Re's, uh, I don't know, secret police had uh, managed to crush yeah. all of the communists in the South right. uh, or something. Uh, something else you won't read much about in Western books is what happened in the three months that the North occupied the South. Mm-hmm. Mm. Following after the KPA, the Korean People's Army moved south, people's committees would spring into being right, right throughout all of the villages that uh, the you know the North had uh, I don't know taken control of. Yeah, people's committees and people's militia chosen by the villagers themselves. There was mm-hmm. this. Uh, I, I know it sounds crazy to Western ears, but there was. Democracy, communists were bringing democracy to right. the South, right. letting, the, letting the people choose uh, their committees and their militia. Now, to be fair, it, it was probably a form of co- democracy like we have today in China and, and Cuba and communist mm-hmm. countries like that, where you can, you can vote and pick your own leaders and your own people, but they all have to be part of the communist right. party, right? Right, It's yeah democracy within a one-party structure as opposed to what we have in the West, which is democracy within a two-party structure that's really a one-party structure masquerading (laughs) as two-party structure. So, you know, it's very different. Very different, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) What did uh, George Carlin say is one party with two branches? Right. It's the the business party that has two branches. Yeah. Cortocracy, yeah. Now, during, during the three months that the North were in control of the South, uh, there were people's committees mm-hmm. elected at village, district, and county levels in 13,654 villages, Damn. 1,186 districts, and 108 counties from the nine provinces that had been liberated. The same social reform laws that were already operating in the north were applied in these regions in the south. Land reform was carried out. So 1.163 million families of poor peasants Mm -hmm. were given land to, you know, farm on, etc. Make a living. Um, So there had been this... Democratization mm-hmm. of land ownership and all of this sort of stuff going on in these villages, affecting over a million people. Yeah, and of course, when the Americans invaded, they just not only destroyed the you know the committees and dismantled everything; that they literally destroyed the villages, yes. bombed and burned and strafed their way. Through the villages, so you know. On one hand, the American rhetoric is where you know they're they're bringing freedom <laughs> to South Korea, mm-hmm. but you know the other perspective is they were actually destroying democracy 
by stomping on what these people had been building for themselves in the three months right. that uh, they were given the opportunity to. And I wonder what Rees people did once they were back in charge behind the U.S. troops. I'm sure that wasn't any more pleasant than what had happened before the North Koreans came across the uh, the 38th parallel. So again, Rees knew he was going to lose because he'd been so cruel to his own people. So that was not that was a no go for him. He he knew he knew he would have lost. Yeah, and the U.S. knew he was unpopular as well. Yes. Oh, and we're gonna we're gonna see proof of that later on in this show. Um, yeah. I, I don't want to cut you off, but but whenever you do finish, before we go back to the fighting, I have a little bit more of the story to tell uh, about oh, yeah, the, the letter. Continue. Okay, so so Nehru, you know, again, he got Stalin to say yes. He's he's trying to talk to the Americans and he's trying to work at the things out for China. Now, Prime Minister Attlee of Great Britain was upset. Why? Because he did not get a letter. So Nehru has got to stroke his feathers. He's like, oh, no, 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 I didn't mean any disrespect. It's just that representatives of Britain and India have been working so closely together. I just assumed that this information would have gotten to you. I, I, I figured it would have been a waste of your time to send this letter because we're, we're compadres. Um, slightly disingenuous. Um, what he really wanted to say was like, Britain, I know you used to be the big thing, but you are no longer the big thing. You are a little thing. And whether you say yes or no to this really doesn't matter. I need the Americans, I need the Russians, and I need the Chinese. Uh, Goodbye-bye. So, um, d- and by d- the b- way, yeah, yeah. thanks for invading our country for 150 years and uh, right. you know, dick. Taking, taking, digging yeah. up all of our wealth, taking it out of our country. Yeah, uh, yeah thanks very much mm. for... You know, but, occupying and exactly. colonializing our country for a couple of hundred years, you cunts. But our favorite part is when you took hundreds of thousands of our men during World War II, turned them into soldiers, and used them to fight to save your empire. Fuck you. Oh, and, and for, fuck and for you. not sending us grain when the we were starving right. during yeah. World War II. Yeah, exactly. Mr. Churchill yeah. said we could all fucking die because we're all barbarians. Yeah, we, we, so, we remember that. Yeah. So, yeah, we so remember. as we say in the South, this we is for there. you. This is for the horse you rode in on, okay? <laughs> Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off there. But like you were saying, when uh, George Marshall and the Truman um, administration doesn't want any part of this, Nehru's idea, uh, Dean Acheson put it more specifically. He sent a message to Nehru and he said, look, the one thing who's sitting in China's chair has absolutely nothing to do with the other thing, which is getting North Korea to back down and go back across the 38th parallel. Whereas you and I know if Leonardo had been sitting there, he'd have went like, no, no, dude, dude, you got it all wrong. It's all connected. It's all interconnected. You take care of the Chinese, you take care of the Russians, and hopefully they can help you take care of the Koreans. It's Dude, you gotta, you gotta. Anyway, so um, Dean Acheson obviously wasn't on the same level as Leonardo, and so he didn't see that, and so he refused to see that. And so Nehru's drive for a coalition of the willing to bring about peace went nowhere, as you can as you can probably imagine. Uh, and there's just, and I'll just end on this. So Nehru. Writes he he sees that his uh, his his attempt has failed. He writes a letter to the British Foreign Secretary Ernest Bevan, and he says, quote, "I have tried to give you the best counsel of which I am capable, but unhappily, and he quotes an Indian poet that I can't pronounce, delicate and tender words are wasted on an ignorant man." Mic drop, but he tried. <laughs> 
He tried to bring about peace. The Americans don't want the peace. MacArthur doesn't want peace. And so the show must go on. Yeah, just the, the, mm-hmm. you know, the disparity between the American rhetoric yeah. and what's, you know, what's really going on is always, yeah, fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> Well, back to Inchon. So uh, at the end of the last episode, we said that on Wednesday, September 13th, four Allied cruisers, the first four, entered Inchon Harbour. U.S. destroyers darted in. Um, They started bombing the shit out of the place. (laughs) Then warplanes from the four carriers took off, started blasting all of the machine gun uh, nests that they had. Yes. Around the place that good old Eugene Clark Eugene! mapped out. <laughs> right. This is for you, um, Eugene. Sorry. Sorry. By the way, I can recommend his book. It's very, as you would expect, uh, 1951. It's very rah-rah America, but yeah. um, just a great first-hand story of a legitimate badass. Like, right. just, like, yeah. And, he's a, and he reminds me a lot of... Um, Lawrence of Arabia, like Lawrence was working in the map room before yes. he went out to as an Good advisor point. to help them deal with, uh, yeah, uh, whatever the, the the side of the Arabs were that he was uh, helping mm-hmm. out at the time. The Arabs. Um, this guy's the same same sort of a dude. Like he's in the map room. Yeah, and he's like, "Yep, straps on a gun, fucking goes <laughs> in deep into enemy territory." <laughs> like, two weeks. I was just where, great. Where's the spa? Yeah. Where's room service? I wouldn't have done well. I would not have done and well. And they're living, yeah. you know, no sleep. Anyway, it's a, it's a really it's a really fascinating story. Cool. Um, <clears throat> so uh, the following night, uh, the bulk of the UN fleet, two hundred sixty one ships, uh, came in through the what they called the Flying Fish Channel. Sure. Um, I had a look at that on Google Maps. So there's a whole bunch of islands, um, you know, outside of Inchon Harbour. Right. And you know, narrow channels that they had to navigate, which was pretty pretty dicey shit, particularly yeah. with, you know, uh, very little uh, survey knowledge that they had. And shitty ships. Just Yeah. And shitty ships, yeah. <laughs> Just before dawn on the 15th of September, the Mount McKinley, Dougie Max command ship arrives. Yes. <clears throat> now that was day five of the air and naval bombardment of Walmy Do. Right. So that's what I call making uh, making a late entrance. <laughs> uh, listen, you guys go in there. It's all about <laughs> bomb the shit out of the place for five days. Then, and then, then I'll rock then up. Then I will come yeah. in. You know. Yeah. I'm famous for looking <laughs> death in the eyes and grinning, but, you know, that's yeah. because by the time I look death in the eyes, he's had the shit kicked out of him. Right. And there's not much he can do anyway. You guys yeah. go kick the shit out of death for me, then I'll stare him in the oh, eyes and yeah. smile, right? You know. And that's what he, he sat on the bridge and just watched as men in their 20s and, and teens yeah, load up on ships and they go to the island. And uh, that, because of all the bombing, and plus they took two tanks with them, was a walkover. They pushed the North Koreans on the on the island uh, and they, they secured it within an hour, I think. Well, at 5.08 a.m., the Mount McKinley mm. dropped anchor. At 5.40, right. their eight-inch guns opened up on Walmy Do. And Damn. Doyle, 
Admiral Doyle broke out the traditional signal, land the landing force. Right. At that point, two North Korean MiG-15s oh, came swooping in, right. shooting at uh, MacArthur's ship. Um, but they were both shot down. MacArthur was still <clears throat> down uh, below deck trying to sleep at this stage. Right. One of the guys ran down to tell MacArthur that they'd been attacked. He'd just fallen asleep. He yawned, turned over, and said, wake me up again if they attack this ship, and then went back to sleep. <laughs> Badass. Badass. But he couldn't get back to sleep because it got noisier upstairs, so he, he got up, <laughs> breakfasted, Sure. Joined the officers watching from the bow, seating, seated in his admiral's chair with his old batard cap, yeah. with the gold braid, his leather jacket on, photographers swarming around him, taking photos. Work it, work it, work it, work it. <laughs> Give me You're powder. a tiger. You're Give a tiger. Me powder. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Loving it, baby. Loving it. Yeah. <laughs> Walmy Do fell pretty quickly when a battalion of 5th Marines uh, landed. Only 17 Marines uh, were wounded during the taking of Walmy Do. And gloating a little bit, Dougie sent his first dispatch to the Joint Chiefs. First landing phase successful with losses slight. All goes well and on schedule. And then he sort of drew a little, you know, finger on it. He just sketched his, <laughs> holding up his finger on there. Uh, and the person if he'd had a Polaroid, a, right? he would have oh, taken would've... a Polaroid of his dick and just included <laughs> so that, that and sent here, it off. Fax yeah. this, fax <clears throat> this to him. Yeah, yeah. You sure it was a finger? It might have been his penis, but I don't know. I wasn't there. Anyway. Mm, mm. At 6 a.m., after they'd finished rocketing and napalming the uh, shore, mm-hmm. the first Marines landed at Walmy Do, and uh, you know he's uh, invisible still inside of his cabin at this stage. Right, the Supreme Commander. Um, it was only after they had landed that he went onto the bridge to get his photo taken. <laughs> And uh, after they landed and everything was, you know, uh, calm and peaceful. Right. Then MacArthur got onto his landing barge. That sounds Ordered right. the coxswain right. to take him ashore. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, the waters had already receded and there was mud flats right. between him and the beach. He'd left it too late. Yes. So he, he, he gets... Uh, he gets a little bit in towards the island, uh, and then enemy gunners who are somehow still alive, a thousand yards away, started to fire at him. Mm-hmm. He stood erect in a Napoleonic pose, <clears throat> according to one guy who was watching him. Right. Um, somebody said, "General, you're getting up pretty close. Somebody's liable to take a pot shot at you." MacArthur nodded looked at all of the mud between him and the lands and the land and then his lips inaudibly formed the words I'm sorry and then told the coxswain to turn back to the ship. Oh. So he re- retreated. But he was like, listen. Yeah. Ma, I can't get mud on these That's boots. Right. You, you understand. You know, these, I spent yeah. 
Well, I, my I, gook. I had a guy spend yeah. an hour polishing. Yeah. yeah, these boots. A gook was polishing my boots this my morning. My gook I mean, boot. Boot gook. I don't know. You know what I'm trying to say here. <laughs> was that wrong? I'm sorry. <laughs> so he returned back to the ship. Yes. Uh, and it was uh, a couple of days later before he and his entourage could finally go ashore when the fighting was all over. That's And then, that's even it. then, right. he landed and then bent over and threw up. Oh, yeah. Because he uh, apparently famously suffered from nausea. Right. He threw up in front of FDR once. He used to throw up at West Point all the time. Yeah. He suffered from nausea uh, whenever there was stress oh. or anxiety. I'll have to look up to see if he threw up when he was taken on a, was that a nine-hour PT boat when he got off Luzon, in, or uh, Corregidor. Anyway, that, that, that just reminded me of that. So I know everybody else got sick. I couldn't remember if he got sick. But it's from what you're saying, it sounds like, yeah, even the old stone face probably tossed his cookies as well. Um but it'd be interesting to confirm. So, but I don't think it was seasickness because he just, just was going on a barge. Ah. From the ship. Yeah, just it was, I think it was stress. It was anxiety, nausea. Because he used to get it at West Point, and he threw up in front of Roosevelt once. Oh my god, FDR. So it's not um, seasick. Not seasick. I got you. No, he just. Oh, cool. Okay. He would just lose his lose his breakfast right. when he was nervous about something. So, th- although, yeah. Why he was nervous landing after... Uh, maybe he's nervous about the fact that he might have to turn around and go back again. I don't know. Right. So the tide has gone out. The victorious Allied troops, they got to wait a while because, like you said, there's lots of mud between them and where they need to go. Well, on the first day, uh, 5.30 p.m., mm-hmm. the first Americans climbed ladders over the seawall with the guys below them throwing a few grenades over the top. Right. But... F- for not much reason. I mean, there wasn't many There's, left. Uh, yeah, the bombardment. They just bombed the fuck out of everyone right. who was there. <laughs> right. Yeah. There was a little, there was a few skirmishes, a little bit of uh, back and forwards of shooting, but um, the two regiments that were established first on shore at Inchon had 20 killed, yeah. less than 200 casualties um, to take to take the the, the shore mm-hmm. at Inchon to take the harbour. Yeah. I mean, it was it was really nothing in the end. Exactly. It was a, it was a complete cakewalk. Yeah. And while that's going on, yeah, and it is turning out to be a lot easier, but that's what happens when you have artillery, massive battleships and bombers going over and just bombing the hell out of your enemy. While that's going on at Inchon, General Parker down in Pusan in the southeast also launches his offensive on September the 16th. Starts out a little slow at first. I'm not sure who to blame for that, but they do eventually get going. They cross the Natong River and they start pushing their way north. So this is looking pretty good so far. Yeah. Um, now, it sounds like as they were pushing inland from Inchon, mm-hmm. more UN troops were nearly killed by their own side than by the north. Right. On the 23rd of September, the Argyll and Sutherland Highlanders... Yeah. Hootsman. Yeah. ...were uh, trying to take a place called Hill 282. Mm-hmm. And uh, above them on Hill 388, the north were established, 
Mm-hmm. They were attacking him from the summit. The the Highlanders managed to get to the top of 282, but they were being attacked from Hill 388. So the Scots called for air support. And then they laid out their white panels, which means don't attack us, attack right. the other guys. Oh, it was a bit like a white flag. Sure. But the North rolled out their own white panels. <gasps> Brilliant. <laughs> Clever tactic. Yes. Now... When the American Mustangs came in, not the Aussie Mustangs in this case, the American mm-hmm. Mustangs, they swung in to attack with cannon and napalm. They dropped them on the wrong hill. They attacked Jesus. the Scottish Highlanders, right. not the North Koreans. Apparently, they were confused by the two sets of white panels, and there was no radio contact because the Tactical Air Control Party had a defective radio. Oh, my God. So they dropped napalm bombs on the Scott troops and then strafed it with 50 caliber machine gun fire. It was all done in two minutes. The hilltop was covered in beautiful orange flame. Love the smell of it in the morning, (laughs) as you know. I read that survivors plunged 50 feet down into the slope to try and get away from the burning napalm. Jesus. But then... Yeah, a guy called Major Kenneth Muir, who's the second second in command of the Argyles, um, when he saw the flames start to die down, he noticed that a few wounded men were still up there. Oh shit! So he assembled about thirty men and led them back up the hill mm-hmm. before uh, heading up Hill Three Eighty Eight. When they were trying to take Three Eighty Eight. They were, sh- they, they were attacked by um, some automatic fire and uh, he got shot. Mm-hmm. And his last words were, the gooks will never drive the Argyles off this hill. Good God. Um, he led racist. 30 men. He yeah. led 30 men up there. Uh, 14 got to the top. The rest got killed. Yeah. And he won a posthumous Victoria Cross. The Argyles lost... 17 killed, 76 wounded, mm-hmm. and apparently the air attack was responsible for 60 of those dead right. and wounded. Jesus Christ. Yeah. So uh, that was kind of embarrassing. Whoops. Yeah. Oh, well, we this- killing their own. Yeah, some of the sources did make a big deal about, you know, and, and you were saying this earlier about this wasn't the most um, planned, most thought out, most perfectly executed landing and, and offensive there was. It was just that the North Koreans were so beaten by this time that almost in, in, even a group of podcasters probably could have given them a run for their money. So, yeah, again, I'm not surprised mistakes like this happened because these forces aren't used to working together and this wasn't all practiced or uh, redundancies weren't built in, which is normally something that happens. They just kind of threw it all together. But it is going to succeed because the North Koreans have literally bled themselves to death getting down to Pusaw. They took a lot of casualties. Yeah. Now, at this stage, the enemy is, uh, the North Koreans are sort of collapsing. They're yeah. um, basically withdrawing, retreating very quickly, disposing of everything that they could. Except weapons, what I read. Some accounts say they were throwing away weapons too. Um, Mm -hmm. Some accounts say they weren't. Some accounts say they were. But either way, they were, you know, taking to the mountains, basically. But one thing the Western books don't say Uh 
is that this seems to have been a deliberate strategy on behalf of the North. Oh, okay. The classic um, art of war strategy, right? Mm-hmm. Um, fight, fight in your own ground where you know the ground better than the enemy. Right. They wanted to draw the Americans into the hills. There was a KPA officer who was captured a little later and told the Americans... One may think that going down all the way to the Pusan perimeter and then withdrawing all the way to the Yalu River was a complete defeat, but that is not so. That was a planned withdrawal. We withdrew because we knew that UN troops would follow us up here and that they would spread their troops thinly all over the vast area. Now the time Mm. has come for us to envelop these troops and annihilate them. What do you think about that? I mean, because that doesn't really negate or have an answer for the the significant uh, Allied air power or the battleships. I mean, I could see trying oh. it. I can see trying that. Well, no, I mean, they were obviously they'd been you know crushed mm-hmm. down in the south, right? And uh, but then their strategy after that was to withdraw back and and sort of lead the UN troops into their territory mm. where they, and then obviously later the Chinese, right. could come in and surround them and wipe them out. And obviously yeah. it worked. Like, um, you know, they then spent, the, the US then spent the next few years trying to destroy the North and getting nowhere, settling right. for a stalemate at the end of the whole deal, yeah. right? Good defensive tactics. Yeah. I mean, they had to withdraw. They couldn't stay down there and, and defeat, you know, twice as many troops with overwhelming air and, and naval superiority. So, yeah, they they had to retreat, but it yeah. was a strategic treat. There was an idea behind it. It wasn't just running away. Right. It was let's draw them into yeah. our territory, at least according to this guy. He could have been full of shit, but there were some other notes captured um, during this period um, where pe- you know, people had written down orders that seemed to reflect this as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I thought it was interesting that um, the Marines aren't the only ones fighting for Inchon, but there are certainly significant Marine forces there. And because of the Marine mentality, there's no swinging around, capturing the enemy. There's no, you know, hey, put your arm, you know, get point, pointing your gun at them and going, this is your last chance, you know, put your hands up. The Marines go in swinging. Um, they end up killing a lot of uh, North Korean troops. They also end up killing a lot of uh, civilians. They end up destroying parts of the city. But again, I, um, General Almond, who was in charge of this offensive, told MacArthur, I will have Seoul by September 25th. And he was pushing those men hard. And so they're just shooting everything that moves. And so, again, it's another thing where civilians died, where they didn't have to. The Allies were going to win this war, That where they were going to win taking the capital, but they pushed it really hard. And so there are more civilian deaths than need be. And keeping in mind that this was sold by Truman as a police action, yes. and just a, a rollback. Yeah. It wasn't long after the Inchon landing when MacArthur made it quite clear that no, that's we're not stopping play. when we push him up yeah. to the 38th parallel. My name ain't halfway. Uh, it's all the way, all the way to the base. You know what I'm saying? So, yeah. Like halfway Harris. That's your... Uh, <laughs> half is all you yeah. get because half is all you paid for. Yeah. Anyway, but that's different. Let's, MacArthur let's, was... No, halfway. Half yeah. an inch, a whole inch. I mean, really, it doesn't... <laughs> doesn't really matter, does it? Doesn't really. See, that's why I'm sad on the inside. Anyway... 
Hey, but that half, uh, you work, you work. It's got hard. some magic. It's got some magic. Yeah, yeah. You thank work you. Hard for that half an inch. Thank you. Since we're talking about um, casualties and whatnot, just real quick, as far as the Battle of um, Inchon goes, um, uh, the Allies are going to end up losing 224 men, 800 wounded. As far as we know, the Communists lose about 1,500, which is almost um, what they had there, so or just like 2,000. So, again, it was an overwhelming victory for the Allies. But, again, they did suffer more than they have to, along with the civilians, because of the rushed nature of the operation. Yeah. So, um, as I was saying before, um, so MacArthur announced his intention of pushing above the 38th parallel, going into North Korea and carrying out, using US troops, what Rhee had not been able to do, which is take full control of North Korea and unify the country. But first... They had the Battle of Seoul. Yeah. It's the second Battle of Seoul, I guess, really. Mm-hmm. And it was carnage. Yes. And Dougie wanted to take it fast. He had a deadline. It had to be taken by the 25th of September. Why, Ray? One, it's a cool date, but I imagine it's the third anniversary of when the North Koreans crossed the line. But isn't that just semantics? But I guess it's a good a good tagline or a good photo op or whatever. Three months ago, we were looking defeat in the face and now we've retaken the goddamn capital. I don't know, but that's pretty fucking mundane. But he wanted it and so General Allman made it or tried to make it happen. Yeah. He wanted he wanted the story. Yeah. There uh, you go. Doesn't matter what we gotta do. I want yeah. the story. Three months to the day we liberated Seoul. Looks good. But there were still about seven thousand northern troops holding it, so he decided to go full Vestadio. Jesus. Yes. One eyewitness, a journalist, R. W. Thompson of the Daily Telegraph, wrote the slightest resistance brought down a deluge of destruction blotting out the area. Damn. So the second, well, that's the whole point of technology, though, right? You're the second you're per, the person that you're fighting turns around and stops and engages. You could engage them, but you might lose men, or you just send in your bombers and your artillery and your tanks. And so it's literally technology doing the job. So it's one side's got all the technology, the other side's got a lot of men, and they've got a reason to be there. They they want to win, but for right now the technology is just wiping them out by the dozens, if not hundreds. And the North Koreans had heavily fortified the city. Buildings were defended by machine guns and mm. snipers. The main road through the city, Mapo Boulevard, had eight-foot-high barricades of burlap bags filled with sand, dirt Damn. and rice, right. located about two to 300 yards apart. Each major intersection of the city had a barricade like that. And the approaches to the barricades were laced with mines, which were usually defended by 45 millimeter anti-tank guns or machine guns. Mm-hmm. So this Damn. was uh, this was a real hand-to-hand, house-by-house kind of operation. Yes. Um, on September the 23rd, Pravda, the Russian newspaper, wrote that General MacArthur landed the most arrant criminals at Inchon gathered from the ends of the earth. American oh. bandits are shooting every sole inhabitant taken prisoner. Their um, correspondent in Seoul compared the taking of the city to the Battle of Stalingrad, 
writing that uh, pillboxes oh. and tank points dot the scene. Every home is defended as a fortress. There is firing behind every stone. When a soldier is killed, his gun continues to fire. It is picked up by a worker, a tradesman, or an office worker. Well played. So it was, uh, that was really brutal. Yeah. brutal. yeah, Brutal. Edwin H. Simmons, a major in the 3rd Battalion of the 5th Marines, said it was like attacking up Pennsylvania Avenue towards the Capitol in Washington, D.C. He said the street had once been a pleasant... Busy avenue lined with sycamores, groceries, wine, and tea shops. Right. But um, they just went in and just wiped it out, destroyed everything in their path. Yeah. The the fighting in the streets of the capital went on from for three days. And as you can imagine, you've got tens of thousands of allied troops. You've got thousands of defenders. Yeah, three days is plenty of time to do tons of carnage and destruction to that city. And that's exactly what happened. When they uh, took the place, finally, the U.S. troops found evidence of mass executions, headless bodies with mm. swords lying beside them. Yeah. Uh, there was a trench filled with hundreds of dead Koreans, men, women, and children. Right. So, uh, yeah, there'd been, you know, brutal stuff happening, I guess, as the North were retreating out of there, because I don't think you just dig a trench and leave it there for them to... It was an open trench. Right. So it must have happened as they were retreating, I guess, killing prisoners on their way out. Right, yes. Um, Then after the battle, when the South Koreans took control of Seoul again, the South Korean police executed citizens and their families who were suspected as being communist sympathizers in what are known as the Gyeonggumjong Cave and Namyangju massacres. Right. So... Massacres happening on all sides, by the Americans, by the North, by the South. Mm-hmm. It was just bloody yeah. and brutal. I think there was one part of one of the sources that said um, basically they didn't have the time or the inclination to guard all these prisoners. Yeah, they might be s- sympathetic communists. They might not, but we haven't got time to keep an eye on them 24 hours a day, so just take them out behind the building, shooting, shoot them, boom. Who are you, you talking about? Who's uh, I'm, the th- we here? I'm sorry, that, that's what the, uh, the South Korean troops were doing, according to some American uh, witnesses, that they told them to take these people away to for hold them later for questioning. The South Korean mm-hmm. troops didn't want to have to be bothered, took them out back, shot them, and came back like 10 minutes later. And it yeah. was ha- Like you said, it was happening everywhere. And like we said on an earlier episode, you know, we have to remember that these are poor people. Yes. Like poor people whose country now has been devastated by war. Food is going to be scant. Yeah. Uh, you know, yeah, there are genuine logistical issues with how you feed and look after uh, thousands of yeah. prisoners. It's exactly. A, it's a genuine issue. Yeah. Well, after this had all gone down... MacArthur decided to um, do a bit of a do a bit of a ceremony in the Capitol building, which had been yeah. half destroyed in Seoul, to mark yeah. the return of the government of the much beloved Singman Rhee. I gotta ask, um, how how did the Joint Chiefs feel about this? Uh, well, they 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 weren't they weren't overly pleased um, Not with keen? this idea. No? Not keen, I not think we put it. Yeah. 
Uh, for a start, the right. US is already at this stage trying to distance itself from Singman Rhee because right. they... He's a dick. Well understood that he was a dick and very yeah. unpopular. Right. More yes. than a dick. He was brutal. He was yes. violent. He Absolutely. was a dictator. He um, ran a brutal state. Yes. Washington warned MacArthur that reinstating the pre-war ROK administration must have the approval of higher authority, to which MacArthur replied, <laughs> message not understood. I thought you were going to say, do you know who I am? I will yeah. remind you. I am Douglas motherfucking MacArthur, okay? Fuck you. So, but but I think you, what you said is probably more accurate, historically speaking. There, there is no higher authority <laughs> except God. And I asked him and he said, hey, you do you. You, you do you. Like, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. You do you, It's your Dougie. planet. It's your planet. Yeah. I made you... To do this in the I made image this of me for you, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, actually, I made myself in the image of you afterwards. Oh, I just you and I remade Chuck myself. Norris, right? Right, yeah. yeah. <laughs> actually, what he was saying was his point of view was the existing government of the republic has never ceased to function, right? And his intention was to return that government to its constitutional seat. That's one interpretation, that's one, yeah, point of view. There's others, yeah. But he's yeah. in charge. Yeah. 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 <laughs> right? So he's got he's so gonna he speechify. He's gonna speechify. Yeah. Sorry. Speechify. Yeah. He plans this big elaborate ceremony. Um yes. one of his commanders said if the Inchon landing had been as carefully planned as that ceremony, it would have been marvelous. <laughs> Boom! Sorry. He, he, he sucked a whole bunch of troops and resources out of the battle oh, I didn't sure to build a pontoon that. bridge across oh, the hand. Right, like Nero. That would enable, yeah, <laughs> that would enable him and his cavalcade to drive directly from Kimpo Airport into Seoul. I bet that was badass. I bet it was badass. So he gets there, there's this big song and dance, American flag, the whole yeah. doodah. He gives this big speech, by the grace of merciful providence, our forces fighting under the standard of that greatest hope and inspiration of mankind, the United Nations, have liberated this ancient capital city of Korea. Here, here. And then, then um, they, he led everyone in the Lord's Prayer. Sure. As sure. you do. I, I would. Yeah. Then he turned to Sigmund Rhee and said, Mr. President, my officers and I will now resume our military duties and leave you and your government to the discharge of the civil responsibility. They shook hands and Rhee said, we admire you. We love you as the saviour of our race. Oh, white people love to hear that. Oh, I just got off a little <laughs> bit. Oh, I'm going to need a <laughs> tissue in two minutes. <laughs> savior, savior of your oh, race. The white saviors yes. have come. Great white saviors. <laughs> I don't know. This there should be a song. There should be a theme. Maybe there is. <laughs> I'm sure if you go back to yeah. Charlotte, North Carolina, <laughs> you'll probably find. I probably you would. Put your, your, yeah. Take your robes. Put your robes back on. I'm pretty right. sure. Right, you've got plenty of songs yeah. for you down there. Yeah, good point. Yeah. Played by banjo. Yeah. Uh, but yeah. that's a that's a whole nother uh, 
It's a, oh, and just a side note, real quick. My home state of South Carolina, uh, South Carolina, is actually leading the way in new COVID cases. So, again, Florida, Texas gets all the news; they get all the attention. But South Carolina is the true rebel here. Anyway, I'm done. I just wanted to put that out there. Sorry. So the war's over. So we won. Fucking a. Right. Yeah, well, Douglas MacArthur flew back to Tokyo, convinced that it was all done and dusted. <laughs> now it was just a matter of mopping I, up. Okay. And he didn't need to be in charge of that, just mopping yeah. up. Yeah. He's I got a mop, mop guy. He's got, yeah. he's got a gook boot, right. boot gook, <laughs> and he's got a mopping up guy. Uh, it's all good. Yeah, he's, he's He's... he's yeah. uh, He's, 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 what do you call it when you get someone else to do your work? He's, uh... Delegated? Delegating. Delegate. That's it. He's delegating. Chief yeah, delegator. He's, 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 I got yeah, you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I'm done, son. Where do I sign? You want my autograph? And I'm on my plane. On my plane. So good. So yeah, the Korean War is over sh- with. Sorry, go ahead. Korean War is all done Stick except for the crying. <laughs> now... Right. Shortly after the Inchon landing, the Americans got their hands on a document that uh, was quoting Kilim, Kim Il-sung right. talking about what had happened. He said the original plan was to end the war in a month, but we could not stamp out four American divisions. Right. He said that the units that had captured Seoul had disobeyed orders by not promptly marching southward thereby giving a breathing spell to the Americans. He said, from the beginning, our prime enemy was the American soldiers, but he acknowledged that we were taken by surprise when the United Nations troops and the American Air Force and Navy moved in. Um, He did anticipate the involvement of more American ground forces coming in from Japan, but Mm -hmm. not as many as they sent and not with the air and naval units. Right. So that was a bit of an oversight. Um, and But to be, to be fair, he would yeah. have, it would have all been over in a month if, uh, you know, the Americans hadn't scaled yeah. up as massively and as quickly as they did. D- does that, in your mind, go back to maybe, again, uh, showing that Stalin was not directly involved? Because, again... All of that could have been avoided if his man had been sitting in the chair of the Security Council and vetoed everything so the Americans couldn't have passed a resolution to get everybody to join them and the Americans would be in charge. And so for me, unless I'm missing something, that seems to be an indication that Stalin was at least semi-caught with his pants down, that he wasn't involved, directly involved in this. Yeah, you would think that if they knew it was going to happen, they would have res- taken their seat in the Security Council to veto any United Nations actions. You're right. The yeah. fact that they didn't suggests that they didn't know it was going to go down. Um, yeah. And, of course, as we said in the early episodes on this story, um, you know, there, there were good reasons to believe that guys like Dean Acheson have been broadcasting loudly that the u.s didn't really care about korea yeah. it wasn't really on their list yeah. of important things to pay attention to right so that seemed may have seemed certainly in retrospect seems like it was an open invitation to the, the north to invade yeah. the south either 
deliberately to draw them in, like they, you know, uh, funded the Mujahideen in the 70s to uh, destabilise the government of Afghanistan, to draw the Russians into Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. Or it Uh. was just uh, an oversight and uh, they didn't expect it to happen. Hard to know. Either way, the war at this stage, after three months, could have been over in a month, instead left... 111,000 South Koreans dead, 106,000 wounded and 57,000 missing, 314,000 homes destroyed, 244,000 damaged. Uh, American casualties were 6,954 dead, 13,659 wounded, 3,877 missing in action. Jeez. And probably at least 50,000 North Korean military casualties. That was the little police action that was going to take a week, yeah. um, according to Dougie Mack. That's true, man. Well, but as of this date, September 1950, the uh, general conclusion of all of the American intelligence agencies, highly esteemed professional <laughs> Right? Uh, Top-notch. Intelligent, top-notch thinkers (laughs) that they are was that there was absolutely zero chance that China was going to get involved in the war. Nothing, never going to happen. Right. And the British British felt the same way. What are they going to do? Yeah. Right. No way. No, never going to happen. They're a bunch of barbarians. What could they do? It would be crazy. Crazy. And then October 1st, on October 1st, Premier Chu Enlai of the People's Government of China announced that China would not stand idly by while American forces invaded North Korea and they started to send troops to the borders of China. And I guess that's where we'll leave this episode, Ray. Yeah, that sounds good. I like that ending. What should we do next time? Should we keep going or should we take a break? Um, well, if we take a break, what will we do... Do we need to look up the cashmere or is that too in the weeds? I don't know anything about it. I don't really see it as being a key story of the Cold War. I mean, okay. it's, it's, I a, agree. it's an Indian regional conflict right. thing. But I, I just wanted know. to check. I don't know. I mean, what's going on in the Soviet Union in 1950? Uh, the Soviet bomb, we, we've touched we on it. Covered, we, yeah, really a, we covered yeah, we some bit. of their uh, technological yeah. advances of the 50s. Yeah. I don't know. If anyone has any suggestions about what we should do next time, shoot us an email. Uh, we could keep going with this, or we could skip around and have a look at uh, what's going on some other part of the Cold War. I, I go back to my timeline and see what I can find. Mm. Okay. okay. Well, until we, uh, till we talk again, take care, everybody. Stay safe. Toodles. Descended across the continent.